Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Ricky. And this is Season 4, Episode 8 of the Beer and Broadband Podcast, slated to come out on July 12th, 2021. And uh, we're going to get right into it. We're going to talk about some uh, Breckenridge Nitro Irish Stout um, that we ordered from uh, Total Wine. Um, sorry for the background noise. While Ricky's trying it, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the beer. Um, it is from Breckenridge Brewery in Colorado. Um, it is it says fine Colorado ales uh, on on the can. It's a very beautiful can actually, uh, but it's a nitro stout. So you know it's got the nitro um, uh, foamer in there, or the nitro injector in the can. They don't really have anything that says anything like you know this is the story of the brewery or anything like that. But it is uh, 4.8% ABV, um, and that's basically it as far as the can goes. So I, I take it now that you've uh, taken a sip. What do you think? Yeah, it's certainly it's, it's good. I'll be the first to say that this style of beer is, is not exactly my favorite. Like, I'm not a big fan of Guinness. But if you are, like my father is, like Guinness is the only beer he drinks. I like this a little bit better. Uh, it's a, got a pretty similar flavor profile, you know, a lot of real dark malts, um, a little bit on the dry side, sticks on your tongue a little bit, mm-hmm. a lot of those like barleys, but um, I want to say it's almost like it's a little bit softer, like it's not quite as bitter, it is not quite as sharp, um, it's not muted, because like muted implies that like the flavors aren't pronounced, and they are, it's mm-hmm. just like a little bit smoother. Yeah, so I I think you can you can definitely compare this to Kent Guinness in a lot of ways. Um and and I love stouts and porters and things like that. Um but generally I like uh, stouts that have more um like dark stone fruit flavors and things like this and this is, you know, a, a different direction. It's more mm-hmm. of the dry Irish stout, like, like you were saying, like, like Guinness can be. I really like Guinness a whole lot too. Um, cause with certain things and, and with cooking, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Oh yeah. I'm going to go back in again for another sip on it because before I start talking about what I'm tasting out of it. Yeah. You hit a good thing on, on the cooking. Like there's almost always a little bit of Guinness in my house, even though I'll never drink it as it is. It's just so good, uh, to get those like dark notes in anything you're cooking. We love making like a, an Irish beef stew with it. This is so good. There's all the times we talk about all these other beers. It's like, you could cook this, this. I mean, this is, I have three cans left because I had to buy a four pack. They will probably yeah. all be used in cooking. You know, like it's that kind of thing. So as opposed to, to Guinness and I've had the Guinness nitro before, I feel like this one um, doesn't create as, because uh, normally with nitro stuff, just like nitro coffee, anything like that, you get like a, a kind of like a creaminess that comes from the nitro, um, especially like when it creates some sort of foam or something like that for a head. And I feel like without comparing them side by side and just going by my memory, that this one do- is not as creamy in that, that mouthfeel. While being, while having more of a, um, like you get the the more like 
like sweet flavors and a little bit less of the the um, bitter flavors. Um, and and that it's it's a really interesting way of presenting the beer. It's not a bad beer, uh, and for four point eight percent ABV, you know it it definitely has. Um, a uh, um, you can tell that it's got alcohol in it, right? Yeah, uh, it's the alcohol is like the one of the predominant flavors in there. Uh, so it's it, it's a good beer if, if you like um, stouts and especially you like dry Irish stouts. Um, yeah. So, uh, have you uh, did you read the article that I put in here from CNN about Klein Vision's car? Um, the flying car. Yeah, it's cool to see one that's a much longer distance. Because, you know, flying cars like this um, have been tested and been around for, like, a little while. But they generally, like, kind of suck. They're, they're cars that go real fast, and the wings pick up stuff, and maybe it's got a little bit of an engine in it, but, but not really. They're almost more like gliders. But this one is like an actual, like, flying car. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. It is really interesting. Um, one of the things that I think is kind of the neatest about it is that they, you know, you're able to like deploy the wings without really having to do any, uh, like weird thing. Like, you know, you have them in a trailer and then you put them on or something like that. I've seen other cars like that, that do those sort of things. This is all part of like a self-contained unit. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting, uh, overall technology move forward, but Realistic. There's not going to be anyone um, or any country that's just going to let people fly around. I mean, you already have to get yeah. licensed to drive. You're not going to suddenly get a pilot's license on top of driving. You'd have to have to be able to to have something like this. You'd have to have a very special set of skills, um, unless they put automation into it, and then that just seems like. I don't think we're there yet with automated stuff, but flying is a little bit different because, you know, we can, um, if we put the right sort of sensors and everything in, we, we've got a little, little bit more advanced with flying automation, uh, and autopilot for that, but still. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, part of the, part of the reason for that is you can get up so high and there's so few things you can like get into a collision with it uh, of any, subsequence you know like you can hit birds on the way up and down um but apart from some real bad luck and it hits like part of your engine or something most of the time that that's not really an issue um you're right in that sense though like um i grew up next to a small military airport that had a civilian airport next to it but it didn't it didn't take commercial flights it was purely for like self-operated vehicles um there's a lot of regulation there you got to go fairly high for it to be safe which I think when most people think flying cars, you know, you're thinking, oh, well, I'll go fly to my buddy's house. Well, there ain't there ain't none of that. You know, you got to go land an airport, start an airport. It doesn't save you a lot of time. Um, a lot of logistical concerns with things that don't go up very high, too. Like, suddenly you're where drones are. You're suddenly where a lot more animals are. You're suddenly mm-hmm. where particularly tall buildings or, you know, towers are. So... You're right. No one's going to just be dumping into this. This thing's not going to be on the market next year, and you you just take it for a joyride. 
But it's nice to see the technology because I think it does two things. One, it gets us closer to personal aircraft that are a lot easier to operate. Because otherwise, you know, right now, most small personal aircraft uh, are, like, still propeller-based. You know, it's hard to get uh, the actual depth because you've got to get on a small airport so fast, so quickly. You know, the idea of boom, I'm just going to strap a car to it, and the car can take care of the acceleration up to, you know, however fast I need to go to get the initial lift off. And then I can switch over to that other system. Um, is fairly attractive. Well, and the car it also has to be fairly lightweight. So you're talking about paring it down to have a certain weight limit to be able to lift off, you know, and, and stuff like that. So um, Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure how heavy that one is. I know some of these other ones that have a little bit shorter range uh, are still surprisingly heavy. But, you know, airplanes are surprisingly heavy. Uh, it really just comes around to how fast can you get it to go. Because um, as long as you have that lift under the wing, you know you can be as heavy as you want to be, as long as there's enough upward force there. But yeah, uh, it, it's pretty cool. It's like it's like that step in the right direction. It's like this is probably never going to go anywhere directly, but the fact that you can do it and we have it kind of gets us to that next generation of vehicle. Because I don't think these like air car sort of things are going to be. Uh, like a transition phase. I don't think we're going to go from, hey, you've got a normal car to, hey, you've got this air car as your next car. I think they're going to end up being their own type of vehicle that'll have its own, you know, evolution. And at some point it might replace other more traditional vehicles. Um, but the fact that they can get one out here, you know, looking as funky as it does, but the fact that it, it does this sort of personal transportation at probably a much better, like, price to performance sort of standpoint. Uh, yeah, once it's actually like complete, it's it's pretty exciting. I I think that probably air cars or like flying cars would be something that uh, people that would own their own personal airplane would be interested in. Oh you know, yeah, uh, absolutely. Like uh, who who was it? Um, the the guy that uh, would fly to and from. Yeah, he had like a. a he and a bunch of his buddies had a personal airstrip um, in their back yard, and uh, they were all like high-level tech um, people. And so he would go out, and the way he would get to and from work was to fly because it was so efficient. He would avoid the mm -hmm. um, stuff. So, so he would avoid traffic. So, I, I just for some reason, I can't think of his name. Um, I want to say it's Bill Gates, but I'm pretty sure that's not Bill Gates. Um, I, I think it's someone that was like a um, person that was uh, contemporary to to Bill when he was like head of Microsoft. Um, but um, yeah, so I think that flying cars are probably not going to be for the populace. They will probably be things that certain individuals who have a desire to be able to go somewhere, like fly somewhere and then drive around in that area and then come back, you know, and there'll probably be some sort of accommodation like a private airfield or something that they can take off from. Um, yeah. Yeah. Probably certain in the beginning, because you know, they didn't name a price here, but they're, they're probably fairly expensive where, yeah. where I see it really probably making its first big run is counterculture to 
major airplane. Because that already exists. You can already, um, instead of getting on like a big 300-person plane and flying somewhere, there's lots of services that offer like, what is a, a six-person plane? Mm-hmm. You know, we'll take you and your whole party. We'll just go up. We'll go. Sometimes it's cheaper. Sometimes it's not. Um, it's certainly much better like carbon emission style. Like what's your footprint? Um, big planes are generally better at that. If they're huge, like international flights are mm-hmm. really efficient, but domestic flights, certainly not so much. Um, unless you actually manage to fill up every seat, you know, as soon as your plane leaves and it's half full, um, you're not really the, the emissions per person is pretty awful. Mm-hmm. So I could see this being like a fancy, like, look, um, we'll do your service. You got a day trip. You got to go somewhere, you know, two, 300 miles. Boom, we'll fly you up and go to your hotel. Like, we'll just drop you off. You know, and then we'll come back. And it's just, that's that kind of evolution. Not only can we get you to your destination, we can get you a little bit further into that destination. Maybe we don't, you don't have to come to the airport. Maybe we pick you up at your house, take you to the airport, take off, land on the other airport, drive you to your hotel, and you're done. You know? Yeah. That's where I, I kind of see it for now. Is I feel like if it's priced accordingly, it could make that market a lot more attractive. That's fairly similar to what I was talking about, though. It's a service for people that are looking for something that they don't really transition from a larger air vehicle to a smaller vehicle. They just go, they yeah. lift off and then go wherever they're going. Um, so let's talk about this uh, computer that I got from AVA Direct. Uh, I mean, legitimately, the day I got it, my dog broke his leg, and it's just I haven't been able to really use it since then. <laughs> but, uh, I've got it sitting up in my office, and um, I, I can say a couple of things. So the, the first thing came really well packed, pretty awesome. Um, you know, they the people from AVA uh, have good customer service because I had to call them about a problem that I had, um, and and things like that. I will say that um, their ordering process is not as clear cut as some other places mm. where. Um, it's not like they, they do certain things that they don't really explain why or how they're doing those things. Right. So, um, for instance, um, my computer came with a copy of windows installed on it. Um, but it's not an activated copy of windows. And because I did not buy a windows key from them, you know, and I'll have to go buy one and stuff like that. Um, but because I didn't buy one, I didn't actually get <laughs> Windows, uh, you know, set up. And I, and look, you, you would say, oh, that's, you know, expected. You didn't buy a Windows key. But if I bought, like, if I went to, like, say, Best Buy or something, mm-hmm. um, I would get an OEM copy of Windows installed on my computer. And it didn't say, or maybe it did, and I just didn't see it, so it wasn't very clear where that was. Um, that You know, if, if you build out this computer, it doesn't come with, an activated copy of Windows or an OS, um, but they they offer to like put you know like Ubuntu and stuff like that on there. So I'm not really sure why they put Windows on other than just that yeah, was just I'm, by I'm default. a little surprised by that. And I granted I haven't bought a computer with them that didn't have an OS since the very first one, and they did tip it with Ubuntu on there. Maybe they've got some of their burn-in suite they want to use Microsoft for for some reason. But yeah, I agree with you that if you're not looking for it, that's easy to miss because they have you build out all the hardware 
And then, you know, then they take you to like the software section. And most people, rightfully so, if you, especially if you know what you're building, kind of ignore that. It's like, no, I don't need Adobe, you know, backed in there. I don't need these video games with it. Um, but in yep. that list of like stuff you can grab is your operating system. Yeah. Uh, I can see how you would like thought, oh, software section. Nope, I've got all my software. Continue down and just didn't even think about it. Well, it, it does say Windows, but it, I mean, the, it's not clear that that's the copy of Windows that you would put on this computer. Uh, and it, maybe that's intuitive for some people. It just it wasn't clear to me. But, I, you know, like, I'm not necessarily complaining. Um, what I got was a pretty fantastic system uh, with a really nice high-end graphics card. It's a nice sleeper system. No RGB on the outside. You don't really... It, it just looks like a black box, but then when you, you know, turn it on, it's like 5600X and a 3080 in there, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty significant. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty awesome, pretty awesome machine. I got to play video games for just a little bit. I was thinking about bringing it down here and, and dropping it in, but it'll push, um, even demanding titles uh, at a at a fairly high frame rate. I've got a two hundred um, two hundred hertz monitor, and it I mean it it'll uh, it'll push it no problem. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still play on ten eighty sixty hertz, and I've booted up some of my games. Fans don't even turn on in the graphics card. Oh yeah, they, they, they wanted it. that right. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, so let's talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Bitcoin, the uh, the new cryptocurrency that's out there, uh, is slated to take over for Bitcoin. Um, uh, but no, uh, just joking. Uh, let, let's talk about Bitcoin being accepted as legal tender in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I, I've I've done a little bit of research on this. I didn't put any links to anything, but what do you? What do you think about that? Yeah, I had to do some pretty extensive research as well because I had I didn't really understand why they would do it until I read up a little bit more about their country, where they get their money, how they operate. And I think it actually, in light of that information, makes a lot of sense for them. Um, you know, making Bitcoin kind of like a legal currency with the fluctuations is a bit scary, especially since they're already tied to the dollar. So, you know, they've, they've got a pretty rock-solid main currency. But when you peel away some of this stuff, more than 70% of people in El Salvador don't have a bank account. Mm-hmm. So they're living in places that they can't readily be serviced by a bank. Um, by making it the legal tender, they're only required to accept it. Like in a business, they're required to accept it, but only if they have the technology to do so. So you're not brute forcing a bunch of small businesses and, you know, poor, poor areas. And then now you have to have the machinery to, you know, transact with Bitcoin. If you're, you're a cash-only shop and you don't have the, the means to do it, you're not forced to do it. And 20% of their GDP comes from money outside the country. It's people giving yep. money back to them. So that's a pretty significant amount. I mean, uh, excluding... 2020, uh, if you go like 2019, 2018, um, about 17, 18% of the US GDP is our government spending. Like your whole mm-hmm. government budget 
um, is you know proportionally being covered by money being sent back to you. And you know it's not like the people then from El Salvador that's left the country and are sending money back are only in the United States. You know they're all over the world, so they're having to deal with conversion from euros back into dollars or wands back into dollars or yen or anything else. Then just you know tipping it back to families that don't have bank accounts anyway. So all these transactions, all that loss of efficiency, makes a lot more sense than you can say, hey. I'm going to send money to whatever institution. You know, the bank will accept it. They're going to have technology. You know, it's going to come in this more neutral format. It's a lot easier to get to you than, you know, having to do, find out what the exchange rate right now is for pesos, you know? Yeah, you just go and, and drop it in, like buy yourself some Bitcoin and then, and then send it over. It makes a lot of sense for the, those those sort of things. Or you mine some and send it to somebody. Yeah, I think exactly. the, the, the real um, kind of interesting thing here is that the president, and I'm, I'm not accusing the man of anything. I don't, I don't know anything. But he has yeah. done some sus stuff. And he was like the person kind of behind this. Oh, so really? there's, yeah, there is some, um, there's some concern that this might be like a, like a personal wealth or some sort of scheme on his part to be able to, um, take advantage of that financial freedom that Bitcoin could open up for, for him. And it's less about the goodness for the people, but it, it might be a win-win for, for them, you know, um, he does something nice for them and takes advantage of it, which isn't necessarily a win for the people, but um, because he's done it for in this way, it, it you know opens up that that stuff for the people to be able to take advantage of some things and avoid some of the penalties and costs of um, you know maintenance fees and, and service fees that come with uh, international transactions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, there could be something there, especially because it's deregulated. You know, um, dollars are easy to track. Bitcoin, not so much. You know, it's not impossible, but it's not as easy. So if, if something was going on there, I could see that concern. But uh, regardless of what I think what happens there, I can see the benefit to like the average person. If you're taking 20% of your, your GDP in, just as like people sipping money back home, how much more are you getting if it's in like a deregulated network. You're not necessarily paying taxes on the yeah. money you're shipping over, transaction fees, things like that. Um, you know, I expect the real hampering is going to be if like 70% of people don't have bank accounts, that's probably a, a bigger talk of what technology does 70% of people have available to them. So you know, it's not like they're going to have a smartphone and a coin-based wallet and all that stuff. So they're probably still tipping most of the money back to banks or, pe or people that would distribute the money for them. I'd yeah. imagine a system like that where most people don't have bank accounts and you're sending money back to people. You're probably doing it through an intermediary. You know? You're sending it to a bank who then turns it into cash and then mails the cash to whoever you needed to get to. You know? So I can see that you know, doing some things there. There's also just probably the general idea of maybe not right now it's as volatile as it is, but Bitcoin for most people has been a pretty solid investment. 
you know, instead of sending dollars over and, you know, dollars don't really ever appreciate in value, you know, even when inflation is low, they still slowly lose value. Saying I can look and I can send this to my grandmother and I can dish it out to her and say, hey, take this half a coin and give her, you know, 0.05 coins every month. Well, that, that amount might start going up, you know, mm-hmm. instead of sending her $1,000 every month, you know, by the end of it, maybe it's now 1200 Yep. You know, it's a way for me to, to put something in there. It's not like having to worry about getting stocks in someone's name or anything like that. So I can see it. I, I mean, it blew my mind how much of the GDP that was. But I guess it also does really make a lot of sense. Um, I know there's there's a fairly significant community where I was growing up of people that were sending money back home. I mean, it wasn't El Salvador, but you know, you get into a, a country that has a really high quality of living. You know, even for El Salvador, you're tied to the dollar. You know, the buying power is probably much more powerful over there. Yeah. So, you know, Their inflation is not as high, in in essence, as ours is for the same. You know, kind of currency. Yeah, so. the the rates are probably similar, but you know, a dollar is going to get you a heck of a lot more than a candy bar. Dude, right. you know, a dollar barely get doesn't even get you a candy bar over here anymore. You know, no, it doesn't. yeah. So, have you heard of Skeeter P? I'm not. I didn't look it up when I saw it in the notes. <laughs> I, I've seen things like it. Um, of these like here's how you can make some some alcohol at home. I'll let you tell the story of how you found Skeeter P. So there, there's a, um, a YouTube channel called Doing the Most, and um, he talks about Skeeter P on there fairly regularly. Um, I think that's one of his like country fruit wine recipes that he really enjoys making and playing with, uh, you know, different riffs on it and stuff like that. So he. Um, I was talking about it like yesterday or the day before. I don't, I don't remember when I wrote the thing. I was watching a, a video where he was talking about it. Uh, and I uh, saw him talk about doing like a malt extract as the sugar instead of just using sugar and lemon juice. Uh, it was malt extract and lemon juice. And I was kind of intrigued because every other time he's ever talked about it, I was like, ah, you know, like a, a lemonade wine that, or a lemon wine that just kind of sounds, we tried it once and it didn't work out as well as I thought it should have, you know. Um, now that I'm a little, you know, further along in this evolution, something like where you take like a malt extract and you put it in with like some lemon juice and you create something that's almost like a shandy in a glass, mm-hmm. um, but it's you know a little bit higher ABV. Uh, that seems intriguing to me, and so um, it might be one of the things that we we talk about later, uh, you know, or maybe even attempt. Um, so it, it might be worth a, a one gallon batch. I got to get the the ratio of stuff kind of down, um, but I don't know what what do you think about it? What, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah. I read through it, was not super impressed with the recipe. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it would taste. But they had one tip in there that I really liked. Because we've talked about doing, like, really heavy lemon-based drinks. And then that's pretty hard because there's not a lot of nutrients available. 
It's very acidic. It's really hard to get a good environment for your yeast in there. And the person who wrote the recipe touched on that and touched that even with some adjustments, it's really prone to getting like a lot of that sulfur gas in there, um, which we experienced when we made our uh, yeah. our lemon drink. But their tip was to take yeast from an already active fermentation. Like you're making mm-hmm. something else. Like go take a scoop of that wine that's halfway done and throw it in there to try and combat. It's hard to get the yeast rolling and happy with like, look, don't take it at the end because it'll already have had like alcohol poisoning already weakened. You know, don't do it at the beginning because then they'll they'll still be like trying to, to rehydrate. They won't be like there, but take some that are like healthy in the middle of a different fermentation, throw them in there. Um, you know, if they're still prone to sulfur, then it's probably not working that great. But it's still a handy idea. You're going to make something in an environment that's probably not very, you know, conducive to good fermentation. Well, go take the all-star from an already existing bat and let them have a swing at it instead of putting new ones in. So I might have to try that sometime if I ever want to make something I think that doesn't you know, make a good habitable environment for my yeast. See if I can get them all woke up and repopulated and in their prime before I toss them in there. Yep, I, I think that'd be a, a good idea. And sorry about the noise. My, my cat, uh, or, or our cat, has decided that it needs to speak up. And so you're going to hear a little background noise. Yeah, but but um, yeah, the uh, I, I think I think maybe the next thing that we brew together might be a one of these things and see how see how we can do it using the suggested methodologies mm-hmm. of doing it. Yeah. yeah, I've seen a lot of things like that. A lot of the like at home like cider recipes are like that, where they'll just like go get the jug of juice, take out however many cups. Put the sugar in, like don't even get like a car, a carboy type thing to keep the gap, the cap on loosely, and just go for it. And a lot of those just down and dirty at home stuff. So it'll be interesting. I'm certainly willing to try it. I might make a couple adjustments. They're talking about how uh, how hard it is to live in that environment. But if I'm remembering right, I didn't see them putting in yeast nutrients or some of those other things you can do to try and make it a little bit easier for them. So maybe we can take it and, and play around with it, make it a little bit more efficient. Well, the recipe I'm talking about uses yeast nutrients and tannins. Oh yeah, your uh, malt. Yeah, yeah the, the well, the, I mean, just it, the the skeeter, the base skeeter pea recipe that I'm talking about from doing the most. He does all those things. He oh, puts okay. A tannins in it and stuff like that. He puts yeast nutrients in. Um, you know, it, it's just it, or or the malt one. I mean, either one. The mm-hmm. the the thing with it though he takes he doesn't take yeast from the middle of an active fermentation he takes them from a finished fermentation but just right afterwards um and then uses the slurry from that to um to to do whatever and that and and that's generally like after the first racking so whatever's left at the bottom just kind of pours that down in um I'll take my comment back because looking at the ingredients for the recipe I had, there is some yeast nutrients in there. Mm-hmm. But Joe, there is a cedarp.com, and that is how I found out what's. <laughs> I did not. I put into Google. It's the first thing. 
Yeah, I, I didn't it's do got a one comment from Unsent. That on it. <laughs> That's crazy. It's got that great, like, late 90s, like early 2000s uh, website design. Very stock. There's a guest book that no one signed, a photo gallery with a couple photos, but not, but not too much. Um, I'm getting into it now. I'm in the photo. Oh, man. Joe, come on. Hold on. I got to send it to you. This is the guy. This is the guy enjoying the Skeeter Pete. Okay. Skeeter Pete. Skeeter the original yeah. easy-to-drink, naturally fermented lemon hot weather thirst quencher. Learn more. Yeah. I threw it in the Discord. You can see it. It's from the photo gallery of people enjoying Skeeter Pete. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Um, is that the Skeeter P being enjoyed? Oh yeah, right there. There we go. There's a look. There's an FAQ with a mosquito drinking the lemon. <laughs> that's that's some pretty that's some pretty insane. Um, you well, know, the process there. Yeah. There's a um, Skeeter P Facebook page associated with it. Uh, you know, thirteen hundred likes. All right, this guy <laughs> he's been making some more work. Uh, I, I, I find it intriguing. I think that it might be worth doing, especially since, uh, some people that are fairly reputable, reputable in like the mead and, and homemade wine community, uh, make it, you know, so I don't want to knock it, but that website, man, that website. In all like, honesty, now that I've gone through the website more, I want to make it more because on their <laughs> Facebook, dude, this guy has a post where he's got like. A massive amount of supplies. Like that might be a hundred pounds of sugar next to just tons of lemon juice. He's gonna make six hundred bottles all at once. Whoa, if you like it enough crazy. to make six hundred bottles, it can't be that bad, right? I, I, from what I understand, it's fairly delicious. So, yeah, we should try it. Like maybe the next time we'll make a one gallon batch to begin with. Yeah, we'll see if we we'll like it, it, and then we'll make, start making some five gallon batches at that point. Yeah, I mean, almost. How can you not? If you, if you know somebody likes it enough to make 600 bottles and they're not selling it, they're just going to drink 600 bottles. Well, there's got to be something there. Even if it's not up to your taste, it can't objectively be bad. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, has to be, it has to be something, especially if you follow their methodology and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but we should try it. We'll do that. That'll be like our, our uh, mid-summer kind of thing. Because also hear that it's uh it's something that you can you know turn around really quick that's not a yeah i mean um, i'd imagine it's just it's just sugar alcohol with you know? lemon juice in it. there's yeah. not there's not much more there uh, as long as you don't make it a too high abv you're probably gonna have to let it degas a good bit i think even with nutrients and energizer you're going to get some of those uh those gases that don't don't sit well you know all the sulfates mm -hmm. and stuff but uh yeah, we'll see. Maybe back, you know, when were we doing this? Like 2018, we made our our lemon concoction. Is this stuff mm -hmm. We just didn't know what to search for. That was the problem. Yeah, that, that's exactly what the problem was. Well, all right. I think that is the end of Season 4, Episode 8 of the Beer and Broadband Podcast. What do you think, Ricky? Yeah, I think that sounds good. All right, well... Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We have our social links down below. We'd love for you to visit us on Patreon, maybe even join us there and give some feedback or 
be part of our Twitter. We also uh, have uh, some other things that we do, like, uh, you know, let you know about team and stuff like that down below. Uh, and the cat agrees that she really wants to uh, have you know about Twitter because uh, she likes the, the bird-related stuff. She thinks it's delicious. Uh, otherwise, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.